As we begin today, church, I want to begin with the Old Testament and New Testament readings. Each one is, is a bit lengthy, but I would ask that you would give your undivided attention to the reading of God's most holy word, as there is much benefit to be brought about in our focusing on and reflecting upon the Word of God. The Old Testament reading for today is Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 through 24. Uh, should be somewhat of a familiar passage to you. I'm going to read a little bit before the uh, common verse and a little bit after. It says this in verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord, to serve the other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery, and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. He will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you. And yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. Turn now your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 2, which will be our sermon text for the day. The Lord's word says this, Paul saying to Timothy, You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself for what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, having nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's pray. Father God, it is so humbling to read your word. It's humbling to stand before your word, Father, to preach it to your people. In fact, the words the Old Testament, Lord, and the words that Paul had to Timothy, Lord, there's already so much that's been said, Father, just in that in itself, Father, convicts us, Lord. Truth already spills over just in the reading of your word, Father. So I pray that you would bless the preaching of it now, Lord, that you would go forth changing, convicting hearts, Father, for we are sinners, Lord, in need of your grace, Father. Help us to look intently at the things of your word to understand and apply them appropriately as your, your Lord, your word is so tangible to us. I pray that would be seen and known by all. I thank you again for this time. Be with us all now as your word goes forth. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. There's already much scripture that's been read, church, and already even going through the liturgy today. There, there's so many things that are giving examples, right? There's so, many, uh, there's so much teaching in the things of God, even in, in the beginning uh, through the liturgy to the, to the preaching to the application of the, the Lord's Supper. Uh, God's Word is just so tangible in how it, it's applied to our life. And so, church, I, I would ask you to think of some of the best teachers that you've ever had in your life. Not a teacher that you just like because you found them to be fun or, or to be funny, but think about one of the best teachers that you've come across, and I want you to reflect on what it was about their teaching that made it so effective. I presume that at least in some capacity, it was because of the teacher's ability to transfer important information in a way that was practical, that was understandable, and was applicable to you. For a truly good teacher is able to make a concept almost instantaneously understood and personalized by using good analogies that are directly relevant to their audience. In other words, using the right kind of analogy with the right audience and in the right context is one of the best forms of teaching that exists. 
when one is able to make both practical and personal application to the information that is being presented, the learner comes away with a type of knowledge that is instantaneously applicable to their practical life and to their personal worldview. According to Merriam-Webster, an analogy, the term analogy, is defined as this. A comparison of two otherwise unlike things based on resemblance of a particular aspect. Based on a resemblance of a particular aspect. I think this is a very good definition, especially how we will be using it today, as two things that would typically be unrelated, typically are not related, Egypt and our salvation, become instantly relatable and transferable based on the connecting ability of a seasoned teacher. And it's not merely my or your experiences that lead us to conclude that analogies act as great teaching tools, for in fact, Scripture itself frequently uses analogies as a means to teach and instruct God's people. Even more, one could make a case that the totality of Scripture itself functions as one large compilation of analogies as God uses peoples, places, experiences, traditions, and events as a means to teach the church about the broader concepts of God. You're already seeing this, church, but consider the following, just to further flesh out this idea. Is the Passover story in the book of Exodus not ultimately a broader story of God's redemption through the blood of Christ? Is Israel's freedom in Exodus out of Egypt, as discussed just a few moments ago, not ultimately a broader story of God's freedom from the bondage of sin through the blood of Christ? Is the story of Joshua going in to conquer the promised land not ultimately a broader story of the pilgrimage of the Christian life as we await the true and complete promised land? Or how about the variety of stories that Christ uses throughout the Gospels to teach about the things of the kingdom of God? Like when Christ uses a bird in the field to explain how God cares for his people, Matthew 6, 31-33. Or when Jesus refers to a gate and its width pertaining to those who shall enter into the kingdom, Matthew 7, 13-14. Or when our Lord uses the planting of a mustard seed to explain the growth of the kingdom of God, Mark 4, 30-32. This list, church, could go on. And on, as the majority of the New Testament authors use analogies in some form, in some way, to instruct and teach their audience. We're very familiar with it. But arguably, no one taught this way more broadly and more consistently than the Apostle Paul. Paul frequently used analogies in his teachings. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, which is our scripture text for today, Paul uses not one but three analogies in the application and instruction of the Christian faith to the life of Timothy. In fact, Paul used even more than three, but there are three direct ones that he uses at the beginning, which we will spend some time focusing on. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is titled in the ESV, A Good Soldier of Christ Jesus. Many Christians have used the first few verses of 2 Timothy chapter 2 to instruct and encourage others by the use of Paul's analogy of a soldier in Christ. And rightfully so. However, the soldier of Christ passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is often isolated, just pulling out the application of the soldier. And it's often not fully explained in the complete context of the book of 2 Timothy. For Paul does not use one analogy in his teaching in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the soldier of Christ. He in fact uses three analogies, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And each one of these analogies is important in properly understanding the message that Paul was communicating to Timothy. 
For his focus was on the leadership in the church and how they, the leadership, were to lead the people of God. Thus, these three analogies become essential in understanding the proper context and teaching of all of 2 Timothy, especially in chapter 2. So let us therefore briefly set the context and background of 2 Timothy before we begin looking more closely and applying the second chapter. So Paul wrote 2 Timothy, being in a very dark and damp Roman prison cell, just before his death, sometime around AD 67. The Roman Emperor Nero had slowly descended into madness since his ascent to the throne in AD 54, a process that was amplified by the Great Fire of Rome in AD 64 that burned down half of the city. As the residents of Rome began to rise into an uproar, Christians became a very convenient target for Nero. Nero then used believers, Christians, as scapegoats for the problems that had plagued Rome. These problems came mostly from Rome's lack of leadership under Nero, but nonetheless, Paul becomes one of those caught up in this persecution and would be beheaded by Roman officials soon after writing his final letter, which was to Timothy. Thus, the second letter to Timothy offers a picture of Paul's life, Paul's mind, his heart, at the end of his ministry and ultimately at the end of his life. Many details in the letter reveal Paul as a devout man of God, which we know. And his main focus in writing this letter was to, quote, pass along his faith to those under him. At the end of 2 Timothy, Paul mentions a significant number of people, some who had wronged him, others who had served faithfully alongside him. It was as if Paul were giving Timothy a state-of-the-church address at the end of his life, updating Timothy on the current state of their acquaintances and friends prior to him stepping out of his position of leadership as Paul's execution was imminent. Paul understood that the ministry of the gospel would only become more difficult for Timothy after his death. Indeed, at some point after Paul's letter, we know that Timothy, too, was imprisoned for his faith. Hebrews 13.23 alludes to this. Paul knew that Timothy's task of keeping the church pure and within the bounds of sound doctrine, all while encouraging believers to live their lives well for the sake of Christ, would be a difficult and arduous task. Though hardship would be, in, uh, though hardship would be inevitable, Paul wanted Timothy to continue in those things that he, quote, had learned, drawing on the rich heritage of faith that had been passed down to Timothy. Thus, 2 Timothy begins in chapter 1 with Paul exhorting Timothy to guard the good deposit entrusted to him, as Paul was both reminding and reassuring Timothy of all that had been trusted to him in the faith. Paul ends the first chapter of 2 Timothy by reminding Timothy of those whom had been faithful to Paul during his ministry and those who had not, setting the stage for the remainder of the book of 2 Timothy. This brings us to 2 Timothy chapter 2, again our sermon text for today. And as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, in the first opening verses, the first two verses of chapter 2, Paul encourages Timothy to do two things. One, to be strengthened in the grace of Christ. He was, to, he was there to encourage Timothy. And two, to entrust faithful men who will be able to teach others. One, to encourage Timothy, and two, to encourage Timothy to pass on that faith to faithful men 
within the church, referring to appointing leaders within the church. And these two points are extremely important in understanding the context for all of chapter 2, because it helps us understand what Paul is trying to get across in this message, lest we take it out of context. Next, in verses 3 through 4, Paul begins the first three analogies, the first one of three analogies, and encouraging Timothy as to what this task of, quote, walking in Christ and appointing leaders should look like, unquote. As previously stated, Paul often used analogies in his letters, but more specifically, Paul frequently used military illustrations in his letters, as this example would have been easily understood by his audience and their culture. Furthermore, Paul himself was in prison, likely staring at military soldiers on a daily basis. He described in these verses that Timothy should continue in the faith as, quote, a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Timothy would have instantly understood the principle and application of this analogy, as do we. Even in today's modern world, the task, the purpose, the attire of a soldier, though different today than it would have been then, have many timeless, many, many timeless applications. Take, for example, the context of war within the analogy and the fact that a soldier has a commanding officer, for us, Christ, and a mission that is to be accomplished, for us, rescuing the people of God, 2 Timothy 2.10. Or look, perhaps, at some of the more practical features of a soldier. Are they not to be physically healthy and physically fit? To carry out that task, are we as Christians not to be physically and health, uh, or, or physically healthfully fit in a spiritual sense to carry out this task? A soldier trains hard, trains consistently. Are we not to train hard in the disciplines of faith that we too can act as a soldier of Christ in a spiritual sense? A soldier is mentally sharp, mentally ready as he is on the battlefield or she is on the battlefield. Are we not to do the same in a spiritual sense? A soldier is properly armed. Are we not to do the same things? Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, in a spiritual sense, a soldier is willing to sacrifice their life for the good of the mission. Again, see 2 Timothy verse 10. Are we not to do the same thing in a spiritual sense? And these are just a few of the certainly many applications that Timothy could have made in thinking about his position of being a soldier in Christ. And they are applications that we too must make As believers in Christ, we are spiritually soldiers in Christ. However, in verse 3, Paul specifically makes a a few of his own applications in this analogy. And the first one that he makes is the, quote, endurance of hardship in verse 3. The endurance of hardship. Most certainly a soldier was trained to endure in hardship in church. Most certainly are we not to have the disciplines of enduring in the faith, even in the midst of hardship, while we, too, serve As a soldier of Christ, this would have reminded Timothy of the arduous task contained in faithfully serving his Lord and his church. As we must keep in mind, these are words to Timothy as a leader in the church, as Timothy is to take them as a leader, and Timothy is to take these analogies and pass them down to the other leaders that would go underneath him and after him. In verse 4, Paul continues with another specific application of being a, quote, soldier in Christ, stating that a soldier does not get entangled in worldly Affairs. Verse 4. What Paul meant by this was that he and Timothy were to be totally committed to the mission of the gospel. 
Not to say that Timothy or Christian leaders today should not be involved in the things of the world, as we most certainly should be engaging with the people and the things of this world. Rather, Paul was stating to Timothy that he must steer clear of becoming too involved in earthly and worldly affairs. He must stay focused on the mission of his commanding officer, which would have been Christ and Christ Jesus alone. And this is true for all Christians today, whether in positions of leadership or not, no matter what you do. Our ultimate and complete focus must always be on the person and the things of Christ, regardless of what you do for work, church. Our mission is always Christ. It is not just the mission of the church, the mission of the leaders within the church. This is an application that goes far beyond that. It's the mission for all of us. Anything short of that, goal, of that goal is to fall short of Christ's commands to all believers. This was just the first of his three analogies for the second analogy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Paul uses the analogy of an athlete. Now, Paul often used athletic illustrations in his writings, wrestling, boxing, running, exercising. The Greeks and the Romans were enthusiastic about sports. Paul had previously urged Timothy to exercise like an athlete in his first book to Timothy, chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. And now Paul admonishes Timothy with this analogy to faithfully obey the rules of an athlete so that he, quote, would not be disqualified. Church, a person who strives to be an athlete, another easy application today. These are not hard applications to make. They are there to win the game. In this context, it was to get a crown. For us, maybe win the championship, right? Win the World Series, win the Super Bowl. In the Greek games, devout, very devout judges were most careful and precise in enforcing the rules. Very, very strict about how certain games were played. Typically, each competitor had to be a verified citizen of his nation with a good reputation. That would be a good application for a... Uh, athletes today, right? Good reputation. In his uh, preparations for the event, he had to follow specific standards. If an athlete was found defective in any matter, any matter, he would be instantly disqualified from competing. And after competing, and after he won, if later he was found to then have broken some rule previously, they would, without a hesitation, go and take that crown and revoke it from that individual, for they were found to be disqualified and unworthy of their prize. Paul, from a worldly perspective, was most likely not a very athletic person. Yet Paul knew that Timothy would directly understand the application of an athlete and the need to faithfully train for the prize, all while competing by the given rules, lest he or Timothy be disqualified. Paul was saying to Timothy, the important thing is that you obey the word of God no matter what people say, no matter what happens. You are not running the race to please people. You are running the race to please Christ and Christ alone according to his rules and according to his standards. That is the second of, Paul, of Paul's um, three analogies. Each one of these could be flushed out in great detail. A sermon could be given to each one of these of applying these things. But as we go on in the text, the third analogy that Paul gives in verse 6 is that of a farmer. And he uses this as his final te- teaching application to Timothy in passing on the faith. The illustration of a farmer was another favorite image found in Paul's letters, not just here. 
Paul once compared the local church to a cultivated field in which all the believers worked together, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5-9. through 9. Paul had illustrated that each Christian had his own particular task to perform in the ministry of God, some plowing, some sowing, some watering, or some harvesting. But the implication was that it was always God and God alone who would give the increase. God was always the one who was over the final product. Several practical truths are found in this image, again, of the farmer in the field. Consider just a couple of following things. First, a farmer has to work hard and diligently. In order to yield crops, if one were to leave a field to itself, it would produce mostly weeds. Solomon had this truth in mind in Proverbs 24, 30-34, that when he wrote about the field of the sluggard, that it would be understood that when we are lazy in these things, this is what we will reap. Church, is this not true in our own spiritual life? When weeds come up and our fields become overgrown, it's because we have not properly tended to them. Second, a farmer needs the utmost patience. James says in chapter 5, verse 7 of his book, See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he, the farmer, is for the fall and spring rains. Patience is an essential trait for the farmer to be successful. Patience is essential. Third, a farmer deserves his share of the harvest. 2 Timothy 2.6 says that the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Paul most likely here is alluding to the fact that a faithful pastor ought to be supported by his church. The same idea is also found in 1 Corinthians 9.7, where Paul used a soldier, a farmer, and a herdsman to prove this very point. The laborer is worthy of his reward. A final application to church that could be made, final application that can be made, one that I thought about is this, that the church leaders who share the word with the people are the first ones to enjoy its blessings. I've spent a lot of time with this text prior to bringing it in front of you today on this Lord's Day. Therefore, the pastor, the preacher, or the teacher always get much out of the sermon or teachings as they prepare and as they put so much time and study and energy into it. And though preaching is an arduous task, and I can most certainly attest to that, the, pre- uh, the benefits are ones shared only by the one who spent the hour sowing and reaping the fields of Scripture prior. Only at the end to culminate their work into the preached Word of God on the Lord's Day. For in doing this, the preacher receives the first fruits of its message. And I most certainly can attest to this. There is much, much blessing behind spending so much devout time in the study and, and understanding and application of God's Word. So church, in the first six verses of 2 Timothy chapter 2, know this, that your pastors, your elders, and your deacons in church, as Paul passed this down to 2 Timothy, have, compa- have been compared to that specifically of a soldier preparing for and engaging in battle as an athlete that is to arduously train for his sport and compete within a very strict set of rules and a farmer that is to work hard, diligently, and patiently in order to see the crops within his field succeed. And to this church, I say one very important thing. Pray for your leaders within the church. For their calling is a high one. I have more to say on this, actually, church, but Paul doesn't quite get there yet. So let me first continue in looking at the following verses, and I will return to this concept of what leaders are called to within the church as Paul 
brings the flow of his letter back around to it. After stating and briefly explaining his first analogies, his first three analogies, which we just looked at, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer, Paul then tells Timothy, in the first part of verse 7, to think over or to consider what he had just said. He says, think over or consider what I say. The sense of the verse is not meant to merely enlighten the understanding of Timothy. Timothy, don't just simply think about these things, right? He's saying, I said this to you, Timothy, because I'm stressing to you the need for personal application of these analogies. Paul's phrase alludes to the statement, it is better for me to make uh, or better for me to be vague on this so that you may make the broader applications. In many ways, it's similar to what we have done today in uh, the sermon as we kind of fleshed out some of the ideas of this. There are so many applications. Paul says, I can't go into all of those details, but it's so clear when I give you these things, the application that is there. In addition, this phrase also implied that Timothy and the reader are to continue to think through these words carefully. We should think through what it means to be a soldier in Christ, to be an athlete for Christ, to be a farmer for Christ. Because even in your own minds, the the applications are just almost limitless in some sense. Timothy was both to personally apply and to continue to reflect upon these three analogies given to him by Paul on the topic of leadership within the church. And as Paul is getting ready to depart from this world, he has final words to say to Timothy, and these are the three analogies that he gives to him. Therefore, we should think closely and diligently upon them and their applications. Next, in the second part of verse 7, Paul tells Timothy the phrase, For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Make note, church, that it is the Lord and the Lord alone who gives understanding through these biblical analogies. It is not man. It is not us that says, let me make these connections. One of the things, this isn't in my script and I don't have time to do it, but I have to. One of the things that grieves me when people do not understand covenant theology and what Scripture is teaching is when they think that they make their own applications, right? Like, hey, the story of Joshua going into Canaan, it's kind of like salvation. Of course it is. This is why Scripture is telling it. You're just not understanding Scripture. And so people come to these conclusions because this is what Scripture teaches, but they think they came to these conclusions on their own. Scripture, all of the Old Testament is pointing to and giving us in our broken and sinful minds an understanding of Christ. Scripture is the one that gives these analogies so the Spirit of God can work in our hearts and our minds to get us to understand the things of God because we are utterly depraved and unable to see them outside of the working of God Himself. So this is one of the primary ways that God teaches spiritual truths in Scripture, as we had talked about earlier. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 10, as we move on, Paul tells Timothy to remember Christ in verse 8. For he was the purpose for Paul's suffering. Paul says, I'm in these chains because I am doing this for Christ. Christ was the reason. Remember, Paul is currently in his final imprisonment. He knows that the end of his days is near. He is awaiting his execution and martyrdom as he writes this letter to Timothy. And with every move, as Paul was in this cell... The Apostle Paul would have been reminded of the clinking iron around him and the chafing that was on his skin as he was chained, chained like a criminal, chained like a criminal. But though he was chained, Scripture says God's word was not. And it was this truth that Paul found freedom from his situation and was able to write to Timothy with such joy, with such confidence, and with such contentment. 
Now, church, pay very close attention to verse 10, as if you shouldn't pay close attention to the rest of God's word, but do make specific note in verse 10 of what Paul says. It's very profound. He says, verse 10, Therefore I endure, Paul says, everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. As a good soldier himself, Paul was resounding the fact that he had given everything. He is literally giving everything as his life is about to be given to the sake of the gospel. As he, were t- as he was here bringing the gospel, right? He gave it all for the sake of bringing it to his four ordained brothers and sisters in Christ. There was a message by Paul Washer. Paul Washer's messages are often intense, very convicting, but he said something that was, that was very powerful. He often does, but this is one of the things that he said on this topic. Paul Washer, I was listening to one of his messages that he was giving at a missionary conference, and he was talking about how people often come up to him. Paul Washer is relatively well-known, especially in, in Reformed and Covenant and um, Calvinistic circles, and uh, people were saying to him, you could be at this church or that church. Do you realize how useful you could be if you were to go to these churches. You could, you could almost pick from just, you have more churches to choose from than any pastor could choose from. You, you could live the dream, Paul Washer. Why is it that you choose to go into these damp and, and nasty and, and, and dangerous jungles? You know, why would you do that? You don't have to do that. In his response, and if you hear you know, Paul Washer, it's very intense, you know, and he almost rebukes the person, and he says, it's because I must go into the depths of the world to go get my brothers and sisters in Christ because they're waiting for me. I must go to redeem them, to bring them out. I must bring the message. What Paul Washer was saying is he understood, right? It was God's people. It was the elect that he was going after. And when he goes into these places and he brings the word of Christ, their heart is awakened. They come to him. He is not going saving souls. God is. But Paul Washer understood that he was being faithful to go into these places. So he went there to grab hold of his fellow brothers and sisters and to bring them home. Here, Paul transitions just a little bit in verses 11 through 13 as he concludes the first part of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 1 through 13 would kind of be seen as a section within itself. And he then reminds Timothy of a trustworthy saying as he concludes his first part in verses 11 through 13. Paul says this, This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It is no coincidence that this statement was given right after Paul says, I give everything for the sake of going out and, and getting my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's all that matters. That is my mission. I will give everything for that. I must call my brothers and sisters home into the kingdom of God. Now, this faithful saying that Paul says to Timothy was probably part of an early statement of faith recited by first century believers. Other trustworthy statements were also given to Timothy by Paul in his first letter. In his first letter. Make note of just these two. Paul said to Timothy in his first letter in chapter 1, verse 5, this, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. This would have been another 
trustworthy statement, and Paul was confirming that. You have recited this, you have said this, I am confirming this, I am giving authority to this. Again, in chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, in 1 Timothy, Paul says this, The saying is deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul's language to Timothy was often confessional in nature in each of his two letters as he wrote to Timothy. It was as if Paul would take clearly stated and accepted theological truths and statements that circulated among the churches, and he would then confirm them to Timothy as a type of confessional authority. Turns out that confessionalism is a very good thing. Remember, Paul's charge to Timothy in chapter 1 of his second letter was to guard the deposit that was entrusted to him, referring to Timothy's role in faithfully keeping and teaching the pure word of God that Christ had himself entrusted personally to Paul. And Paul did that by confirming these statements theologically, that they were accurate and acceptable and encouraging Timothy to continue in passing down those statements, which is a lot of the confessions that we have even today. Therefore, church, a large portion of Paul's purpose in writing to Timothy was to do two things. One, to encourage Timothy to be a faithful leader. And two, for Timothy to maintain theological and ecclesiastical purity within the church. And you cannot miss point number two. Yes, Timothy was written to be encouraged, but Paul was telling him, here is a task that is before you, leader, within the church. If God has called you to be a leader within the church, as he did to Timothy, you must maintain the theological and ecclesiastical purity within the church. Brothers and sisters, I want to return to an earlier point in the sermon and remind you that the task of leadership within God's church is an extremely noble and an extremely honorable one while at the same time, it is an extremely terrifying and deeply humbling position to hold. It is odd in a way to make this statement, being an elder myself, but I do hope, church, that you have taken the time to reflect and contemplate on the job that your elders have been tasked with according to the scriptures. For your pastors and your shepherds and your elders, church, are called first and foremost to the job of maintaining the purity and the standards of God's most holy church for the sake, for the sake and the well-being of God's holy people. It is to God's glory and it is for your good. Therefore, it is our job as leaders first and foremost, to maintain the purity and the standards of your souls within the context of the church. Church, it's not your happiness. It's not your comfort. It's not your opinions. But we do care for each of these things, and I hope that you hear me correctly on this because we love you and we love you deeply. But as leaders, according to the scriptures, we love you with the utmost godly love, the type of love that places God first, first above anything else and everything else. For we must, as leaders, love Christ and His church first and foremost, above anything else. And by doing this, we abide in the greatest law of Christ. Matthew 22, 38 through 40. As Christ says, this is the greatest of them all. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love others as yourself. There is a progression. Now, in furthering this point, church, Looking at the following verses in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, see what Paul now charges Timothy to do in light of this information. 
Paul tells them, here's the analogies. Paul says, look at what I'm doing, following my footsteps. I'm ready to die as a good soldier in Christ. Hear this trustworthy statement as you go forward. And here's what he says to Timothy in verse 14. Remind them, says Paul, referring to the church. Remind them, remind the church of these things. And charge them before God to not quarrel about words, which does no good. But it only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Verse 17, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Here again, Paul was quoting trustworthy statements at the end of verse 19. The Lord knows those who are his, first quote, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. According to verse 14, it is my duty as an elder and as one bringing God's word to you today to remind you of the high callings of Christ as you live out your Christian faith before God and to exhort you to remain focused on the things of Christ, not on foolish and unimportant quarrels, not on disputes or disagreements. Paul's exhortation was that the people of God are to present themselves as ones approved before God, having no need to be ashamed. And why should they have no need to be ashamed? What is the reason for this? Because they, because we have faithfully handled the word of truth. When irreverent and inappropriate and sinful talk or sinful gossip or sinful teaching takes place unchecked in the church, Paul tells Timothy that if you allow it to go that way, it will spread like game green. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up. Careful of the pictures. No wonder, church, no wonder why you have such a faithful pastor that is so careful and diligent to faithfully and properly exegete the word of God week after week after week after week as he pours himself into this very congregation for he, and as you probably can tell, I am referring to Pastor Joe, understands the teachings Paul is given and giving to Timothy and understands the extreme importance of theological purity and unity within the church. You see, beloved, it is for the reasons stated by Paul why your leadership, the elders of this church, are so diligent in the theological disciplines, teachings, and beliefs within the church. Quoting Pastor Joe from a sermon series he preached just a few years ago, theology, referring to good theology, does not divide, it unites. When a church leadership has a clearly defined biblical theology, such quarrels about words and such irreverent babble cease to take place. These potentials are quickly reminded, or remedied, I should say, by a united and theologically sound leadership. And this unified theology prevents apostasy from taking place, as Hymenaeus and Philetus gave an example to in verse 17, and the dangers therewithin. Because as I wrote this sermon, I began to reflect on my previous encounters, and maybe you are too, with church disunity and with church animosity. 
And though each uh, situation, and there were a couple different situations of which I was unfortunately um, uh, around or saw or witnessed, each had its differences, most certainly. But each did share a very common thread as I thought through it very intentionally. They each shared a single symptom, theological and leadership disunity that existed within the church. Theological disunity and leadership disunity. And I should say theological unity, which led to leadership disunity. Thus, this truth for me became all the more imperative to my personal applications within the sermon and my personal applications as an elder of this church. Therefore, brothers and sisters, God's church is one of both purity and purification. Because as the teachings of God's word are both faithfully preached and lived out within Christ's church, it has somewhat of a cleansing effect, which we have seen, bringing about the sins of the unfaithful people from within, enforcing those sins to be dealt with by the leadership and congregation of the church, both those who are faithful to Christ and those who are not. This is why in verses 20 through 21, Paul addresses those who are of God and those who are not. For God's process within his church is always to purify it. For God knows the hearts of all and those who are truly his, the elect, as Paul referred to, and that they will remain in the fold. They will remain in the flock. They will remain in the house. They will remain with the people of God under God's structure and leadership within the church. One of two things happens when these things start to come about. People are rebuked and corrected and are better for it, or they are pushed out ultimately of the church because they are not of the flock of God. This church is what leaders are called to within God's holy church. To care for and oversee the things of God within His ordained church. Congregation, you should be encouraged by this. For by having a church and having leaders who put the things of Christ first above anything else, serving as faithful soldiers for your soul is like having a husband who puts Christ above anything else. And I do not need to take much time to explain this analogy, for you already know how a husband who loves Christ first and foremost would treat his wife, how he would treat his kids, and how he would treat fellow believers in Christ. Everybody is better for it. As leaders, we are here to keep you on the straight and on the narrow path, teaching, praying, counseling, rebuking, loving all to the glory of Christ and for your good in all things. And I hope that in all we do, in everything that we do, that it is abundantly, abundantly clear to all that what we do, we do to be faithful to God alone and to be faithful to you, to be faithful to us, his church. Finally, in looking at the concluding verses of 2 Timothy 2, Paul ends with an overview of the qualifications for leadership within the church, very similar to that of 1 Timothy. Paul says this in verses 22 through 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they only breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant, the Lord's servant, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them then repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him 
to do His will. Now what I want to do really quick, church, he did this in 1 Timothy. And sometimes the context here is we should all hear these words and it should encourage and exhort all of us to faithful living before Christ. But remember the context of 2 Timothy was to the leaders within the church. It was to the elders within the church. Because back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, Paul says something very familiar, very similar. I want you to now hear these words in light of that and look at the parallels between the two. Because in 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Paul tells Timothy the qualifications of that of an elder. So in 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Paul says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be the office of an overseer, an elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, Hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace." into the snare of the devil. The eldership passage in 1 Timothy 1.3 closely mirrors much of that of 2 Timothy 2.22-24, giving certainty of the context of 2 Timothy chapter 2, that Paul was first referring to the elders and leaders within the church, and second referring to all those who follow after Christ within the church. Paul's final words in chapter 2 of his second letter to Timothy were to once again once again, at least, at least a second time, to be reminded of the biblical standards required for one to serve in leadership within the church. And the fact that he reminds Timothy of such standards multiple times is a testament within itself to the importance and the reverence of such office. In closing today, church, I have four quick points of application, and they are very quick. I feel like my sermons are going as long as Joe's today. Four quick points of application. Church, pray for your leadership, for they are the soldiers fighting for your souls on the front lines of the church. They are the athletes that train specifically and consistently not to be disqualified, and they are the farmers who work tirelessly and patiently for the church of God. Pray for us, pray for them, frequently and fervently, that we would continue to fight the good fight, faithful to Christ. Number two, please think about and reflect upon the purposes and tasks of church leadership. For all that the leadership does, we do it to stay true to Christ. We do it to stay faithful to his scriptures. We do it to God's glory and for your good. If you ever have issues or concerns, church, we would love to meet with you. Please come to us. Please come to me. But please never embitter yourself by keeping frustration or animosity in your hearts. The scriptures have much to say about that. We all must be faithful in abiding in the teachings of the scripture. So if you have concerns, I can assure you that everything that is done by your leaders, witnessing it firsthand, speaking, I'm trying to be as objective as I can. Somebody needs to say it, but I'm also one of those leaders. But I can truly and honestly attest that it is done to the glory of God and to the faithfulness of his word. 
Number three is the leaders of the church are called, as you have seen, to fight as soldiers from their position. Know this. So too are you to be a good soldier, a competitive athlete, and a successful farmer in your own Christian faith. Paul's words here are first to Timothy, secondly to the other leaders that are passed on in the church, and third to all believers in Christ. Paul makes three analogies to apply to everybody in Christ, not just to the leaders. This is for all of us. Make those applications in your minds. Think about them, study them, reflect on them, for there is much that can be learned in Paul's three analogy. And fourthly and lastly, church, make sure that your life and, and faith reflect that of one who is a quote, quoting from the passage, a worker, approved by God. Hear the words of Paul to Timothy and reflect on your own life. Is there For as a leadership church, if we encourage you, it is for our love of Christ and you that we do so. If we counsel you, it is out of our love of Christ and you that we do so. If we admonish you, it is out of our love of Christ and you that we do so. For all the purpose of ensuring that we all walk together, together in these positions, that we all do this unified together as the, uni- the unified church of God, the church of Christ, and walk to that finish line as faithful workers approved by God. Brothers and sisters, in conclusion, leaders in the church are called to be the frontline soldiers, but soldiers nonetheless. For we all, when we unite in the church of God, serve as soldiers in Christ. All of us. So I encourage you, fight the good fight as a soldier in Christ. Train up your faith as a good athlete, that you are found fit and ready to compete according to the rules of Christ. And work hard, work hard as a farmer, diligent and patient in sowing and reaping the fields so that you too will taste the first fruits of Christ's harvest. Let's pray. Father God, again, we are humbled by your word and your scriptures. But I am just so thankful for these analogies that Paul gives. They're so effective at reaching our hearts bringing both at the same time encouragement and conviction. Only your word can do that. Pray that your word goes forward, Father. May we hear these things. May we continue to faithfully pursue Christ in all things. And again, being thankful for your words. You're so gentle. You're so purposeful. You're so good at teaching us and caring for us. To all things be to the glory of Christ and Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.